This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Take a one-week pause out of our study through John, and I want to bring a word today that I, I hope will serve us all, and particularly fathers in the room. You know, you can go a lot of directions on Father's Day. We could ignore it altogether. Um, it's not part of the church calendar. It's an American kind of tradition, so we could just ignore it altogether. And that wouldn't be wrong. I mean, we could give you a Dunkin' Donuts thing. I don't think we have to preach on fathers every uh, Father's Day. That'd be fine. We'd want to honor you. but um, So we could do that, or we could just bring a message about growing as fathers or the need of fathers or whatever. But as I was thinking about it, I just realized this is a day that's really a different experience for different people in the room. And this is a sad day for some people. There's probably folks in the room that this is the first Father's Day uh, since their dad passed away. And so it's not a, a great day of joy necessarily. For, for other people, it may not be a death. It may be a bad relationship. There's a distance that people feel from their fathers. There, there are fathers in the room who feel regret, especially fathers, uh, older fathers, who live with some kind of regret about how they wish they would have been a different sort of father. There are fathers in the room that uh, are battling infertility and want to be a father and aren't a father. There are fathers today who are doing pretty well, but come in wincing a little bit uh, because they are about to get clobbered as we open up the scripture. Because the church tradition is on Mother's Day, you honor moms, you come up with an acrostic, like M is for magnificent, O is for awesome, misspelled, and uh, so I, I didn't have one, an O, I don't know, this is all spontaneous. But uh, So we do an acrostic and uh, frame it in a lacy thing and honor the moms and are kind of weepy about it, and the dads come in, and uh, we sort of punch them in the stomach and say, do better, you slob. And so that is the that is the general preaching approach to the two days often. And I just thought that might not be the best way to handle this today. And I'm not going to go with the acrostic for the dads in the room. So what do we do? Well, I want to look at a passage of Scripture that describes God. I, I felt like we won't go wrong talking about God today. Um, And then what I would like to do is to consider how God relates to us and then make some specific applications at the end for fathers in particular. And this is a little bit different. I'm not going to read and study the whole uh, Psalm 103. We're only going to do four verses. This is going to kind of be a meditation on four verses. Uh, So I'm not going to give kind of all the background and history that I might normally do in a sermon. This is a little bit more of a meditation, walking through four verses of Psalm 103 uh, on this Father's Day and looking at how God's immeasurable love for us is higher, wider, and deeper than we can even imagine. How God's immeasurable love for us is higher, wider, and deeper than we can even imagine. Uh, Beginning in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You remember that we are dust. And so we gather here today, not many wise, not many noble, not many powerful, none holy in and of ourselves. And we say, Lord, would You shower Your love on us today in a fresh way by opening our eyes to Your character, to Your care. And I pray in particular for every father in the room that Your grace would cause us to celebrate Your love and that Your grace would spur us on to loving as we have been loved. We pray for that today. Spirit of God, come and do an extraordinary work in this room among Your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, in these verses, I just want to look at uh, three different kind of points that are made from the passage. It's a psalm that kind of starts out with individual praise in verses 1 through 5. Uh, verses 6 through 18 are sort of the praise of the people of God, a communal praise, God's people. And then the last few verses, 19 through 22, are a uh, kind of a... Um, Universe, or creation-wide praise, calling the angels and everybody to praise. But the passage we're looking at is right in the center of this teaching about the, the people of God praising God. And he, the, the writer reveals to us, David reveals to us this, as one commentator kind of pointed out, this helped me, that he talks about the height of God's love, the width of God's love, and the depth of God's love. The first verse we looked at is the height of his love. Well, what he's going to do in these three sections that we're looking at is he's going to use a simile, a comparison um, between God and something, or in, in the case of a father, someone, so that we might understand something about the nature of God. And he starts out with this in verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards his people, called those who fear him here. What does that mean? What is David talking about? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. What he's saying is the love of God is immeasurable. You cannot quantify the love of God. If you go from planet Earth and you travel, you know, multiple light years to the boundary of the universe, which is an unknown to us, from our perspective, this is just a limitless, um, a limitless quantity. That God's love is like that. It cannot be quantified. And when David wants to talk about the love of God, he cannot use concrete um, sort of calculating terms, he must speak poetically. He's not speaking poetically here primarily because he's a poet, though he is, but he's speaking poetically here because that's the only way you can describe the love of God. To describe the love of God in human language means that we must use some kind of comparison, some kind of poetic language to describe his love. As far as the heavens are from the earth, endless, immeasurable, boundless is God's love. It cannot be fully defined. It cannot be fully uh, comprehended. You cannot get your mind around the love of God, David says. It's not a math problem that you can solve and say, there's the answer. It's seven. It's not something that can be calculated in those terms. It is immeasurable. 
And when he goes to describe it, he doesn't just say the love of God, but he says in the ESV, the steadfast love of God. Now, we've talked about this word before previously because it's in the Psalms all over the place. It's the word hesed, and it means God's covenant love. It's translated different ways. Sometimes it's called loving kindness, sometimes just love, sometimes covenant love. But it's not a sentimental necessarily or emotional kind of a term, this steadfast love. It's a covenant love. And it describes God's commitment. That's a covenant. God's binding commitment to his people. So he says the way God relates to his people and the way he binds himself to his people, it's it's limitless love. So what he's saying is God relates to his people loyally. God is infinitely loyal to the disloyal. God is infinitely loving to people who act in unlovely ways. God is immeasurably faithful to his covenant, even when his people are faithless. God is extraordinarily, indescribably sacrificial and selfless to people who are selfish. That's the kind of love. It's this love where God says he will set his love on us. He will save us. He will be faithful to us regardless of our behavior. Regardless of our actions, it's not a merited love. It's not a mutual love. Steadfast love is a love regardless of the recipient's response. It's a love that shows grace to those who deserve his wrath. And David says, I can't describe this for you. The best I can do is say, start at planet Earth and just start driving. And when you get to the end of the expanse of the universe, then we can begin to talk about the measure of God's love. It's measureless. It's measureless. And and what is so wonderful about this is that while it is immeasurable, uh, it, he, he can get it some ways to sort of describe it so that we can get it a little more clearly. He does give us a tangible demonstration of it. If you back up one verse... He does tell us he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. So there's a little bit of a context for this love. It's not just a bear hug and I I love you and just sort of a sentimental sort of a deal. It is a, a radical love that says he does not treat us as our sins deserve. So he talks about our sins and what we deserve, and he then goes into the love of God. Because you cannot understand the love of God unless you understand what our sins deserve. And that's how he contrasts these two so that we would understand. He does not deal with us according to our sins, is what verse 10 says in the ESV. I think it's the NIV that says he does not treat us as our sins deserve. It means the same thing. The, e, the NIV wording's a, a little, uh, I think, there's a little more facility to those words. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, but it means he has not dealt with us. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. Well, if he does not treat us as our sins deserve, what do our sins deserve? I mean, if we look throughout Scripture, what we would find is that what our sins deserve in light of his holiness is condemnation, judgment, his wrath, his holy anger, heaped upon us forever. What we deserve, what our sins deserve before the holy God of the universe is judgment. God is perfect. He creates us. We resist him. We reject him. We make ourselves his enemies by nature. And we deserve wrath. We deserve hell. 
but he does not treat us as our sins deserve, those who believe in him. Romans 3 says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one who does good. All are deserving of judgment. But he does not treat us as our sins deserve. As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how much he loves us. If he did treat us as our sins deserve, it wouldn't be wrong. It would be justice. And those who are not believers will be treated as their sins deserve in all eternity. Those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, who have not believed in him, will be treated as their sins deserve, and that will be just. But this section of the passage is talking about his people, those who believe in him. And he says, for those who believe in him, his people, he does not treat us as they deserve. He does not repay us according to our sins. And so David is praising God for this. He's not giving us what we deserve. Sometimes in the Bible, we don't just praise God for what he does. We praise God for what he doesn't do. And here we're praising God that you are not pouring out to us, on us personally. We are not receiving what we deserve. That is love. Well, why is that love? Is it love because he just sort of winks at our sin and says, boys will be boys? You know, okay, we're going to let that one pass like some kind of indulging uh, parent or grandparent or something like that? No. No, he, he does not deal with us according to our sins deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve because he treated someone else as our sins deserve. That's the love of God. He treated himself as our sins deserve. Jesus Christ gave his life for us. Jesus Christ was treated as our sins deserve. And that's what's happening in the cross. If you're new to the message of Christianity or you're just investigating it, what, what we would want you to understand from the Scripture is the, the message of Jesus dying on the cross, to which you're likely familiar, the, the story of Jesus dying on the cross is not the story of a martyr who is setting an example to show what love is because he's dying for a cause. The story of the cross is God is, is, is God, the God man, Jesus Christ, is dying as a substitute in our place. It's the holy God of the universe taking the judgment which is due sinful people and embracing it himself, pouring it out on his own son. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve because he treated Jesus. Is that because we're so lovable? Is that because we're so good? No, that's the whole point. We're not good and lovable. He's dying for those who've opposed him. Why does he do that? Because his love is such that the only way we could even begin to describe it is that it's, it's, it's as great as, as the high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how great his love is. It's endless. Now there's a concrete example of how it expresses itself. He becomes man and dies for us. And so that is the height of his love. It's higher than any of us can, can, can imagine. And while the cross begins to give us a living demonstration, David says that ultimately it's inexpressible. It's higher. It's as high as the heavens are above the earth. He has to go poetic to even talk about this. And there is a living example. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's loving. He solves our greatest problem. He cares for us. Do you feel that love today? 
Do, do you understand mentally that love and do you feel it in your soul? I mean, th- this is, this is not, th- these words here are not just sort of a dry theology. It, it is a living truth that God wants us to be gripped by. That God's love for you today, it's way beyond what you can even imagine. In this room, we don't even, we have a small, tiny glimpse of what the love of God really is. When we see Him as He is, I, I just can only imagine that it will be overwhelming, that we will say, we didn't know the most minute reality, but now we see it all clearly. His love for us. Do you relate to God? Do you think about God? Do you read your Bible and pray and, and fellowship in your community group and come to the gathering of the church here on Sundays and go about your daily life in the marketplace at your job or in the home if, you're, if your responsibilities lie primarily there? Do you go about your daily life aware that God loves me so much, it's indescribable, but the clearest way I can see it is that He's not treating me as my sins deserve. He will never treat me as my sins deserve because He crushed His Son and treated Him and gave Him what I deserve. That love of God is to compel us to live a life for His glory. That love of God is to compel us to love others with His love. And for dads, that love is to compel us to love our own children, the height of his love. He next describes the width of his love, the fact that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He's going to say more about that. Look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Okay, how far is that? Well, just start heading east and let me know when you hit west. You just won't. Uh, some, some guy in literature, I read the quote this week. Oh, please don't Google it on your phone and tell me afterwards because I'll be saying, why were you Googling during the sermon? So don't tell me afterwards. Uh, but you can email me this week so I'll think you found out this week and not during the sermon. That's the danger of everybody having a smartphone in the service. So, um, okay, here we go. Some literature guy, and I can't remember who it was, said this. He says, you know, east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. And it's this idea that, that they're just completely separate and east never becomes west. And that's what he's saying. It's another way. One is heights. How high is the heavens are above the earth? Immeasurable. Okay, how wide? How far? This is horizontal. How far is east and west? Immeasurable. It's another poetic expression. It's immeasurable. Okay, that's how far he takes our transgressions, which are our sins. That's how far he takes them from us. That's how far he removes our sins away from us. Immeasurable, infinite, beyond description. Your sins, if you're a Christian here today, your sins are completely, absolutely, totally removed from you. You are, you will not stand before God in eternity and be separated from him at all because all of your sins have been taken care of. Charles Spurgeon, when reading this verse, as far as the east is the west, from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us? Charles Spurgeon, a, a well-known pastor, a, a British Baptist pastor from the 19th century said this, Oh, glorious verse, no word even upon the inspired page can excel it. No scripture could even excel this idea that all of our sins are removed from us today. 
that we are totally declared righteous, that we have been, the Bible word is justified. That is, God declares us righteous because His Son, because He treated His Son as we deserve, and because He judged His Son, He now, to the believer, declares us to be righteous. He declares us forgiven, and He not only declares us forgiven, but He declares us righteous with His Son's righteousness. So it's as far as the East is from the West. None of our sins are upon us. Do you know that? Do you embrace that? And I'm going to use this word again. Do you feel that? In other words, mental biblical truth is to touch our affections at some level because so much of the Christian life is is to be lived out of the affections. The idea mind is good and emotion is bad in all cases is not true. That is not true. The mind-believing truth is is to have affections that are stirred by truth and a will that then responds to truth. So this truth is supposed to affect the way we live. It's supposed to affect our view of God. It's supposed to affect everyone in the room. It's supposed to affect us as fathers today as we're talking about that. I mean, this is the testimony. He's completely removed our sins. This is the testimony of Scripture. Isaiah 43, God says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. That's what God says. God's not sitting in heaven right now or in, but with us by His presence through the Spirit with this big list dangling over everybody's head here today and saying, how dare you sing those songs? Look what's on the list. That's not the voice of God. That is the voice of Satan. That is not the voice of God. That is the voice of the flesh. Hear the voice of God. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31, God says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That means I will not bring them up to remembrance and hold them guilty. Because Jesus has paid that price. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not a little condemned if you're a Christian. You're not mildly condemned. You are not, well, forgiven and really welcomed, but partially God is ticked off at you. And so you're somewhat condemned. You're going to pay for some of your sins. Romans 8.33 Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. If God has chosen you, God has saved you, He's opened your eyes, He's given you faith, He's forgiven your sins, then who's going to bring up a record and say guilty about you to God? God says no one's going to do that. So why should you? Why should you live in the remembrance? Why should you live beating yourself down? Why should you live as if Jesus never died? Why should you live as if some of your sins were placed on Jesus and you'll pay for the others, thank you very much? That's the ultimate offense to God is not to receive the work of Jesus. What is more offensive to the Father than to deny the gift of the Son? And some will pay for that for eternity because they deny the work of Jesus and say, I don't need God, I don't need a Savior. And God will cause them to pay for their own sins. But even as Christians, we can receive in part, but still walk around with a nagging, low-grade guilt as if God is condemning us. God's forgiveness is complete. Do you know that today? Dad's in the room. Do you live with a gnawing sense of guilt before God? Do you feel 
that God somehow is not accepting you before him fully because some of your sins of commission and sins of omission as a father. Is there that gnawing sense? Now, my experience is that often moms carry around more guilt than dads, and that kind of raises a whole different problem for some of us, Um, but a lack of awareness of our sin sometimes. But if you are aware of your sin, do you live with an awareness like God is somehow holding that against you, that God is just, his general posture towards you is one of displeasure? Do you feel like, you know, I live with some regret? There's, there's dads with, um, old, there's older dads in the room who've had some time to make some mistakes and to sin and to fail. And do you live with a sense of regret? Do you live with even this day thinking, okay, we're talking about dads. I'm just going to be aware of where I failed. I'm going to be aware of, I wish I knew then what I know now. But by the way, who doesn't experience that? I mean, who, who of you who's an adult now wouldn't say, boy, if I knew what I know now in junior high, I would have dominated, man, you know? <laughs> if, I had the, if I knew what I knew now, I would have gotten at least B's in seventh grade, you know? <laughs> I would have made the basketball team. I'm 6'4". I mean, wow, if I, if I had this, actually, I'm slow and winded. I wouldn't have made the team. But, you know, it's, you get the illustration. Who doesn't live with that? What parent of a 30-year-old doesn't say, man, I know more now than I did when he was 30 days old? And that is life. And, and we can live with, some of us can live with regrets. I, I wish I had done more. I, I wish I hadn't been so passive. Maybe it's not regrets. Maybe your kids are still at home. Maybe your kids are still young. And it's not regretting the past, it's living with a low-grade guilt for the future, because I mean, of the present, rather, because you always feel like you're just aware of where you're failing. By the way, just always being consumed with not measuring up, how's that working out at producing godliness in your life? How's that working out at pushing you to God? How's that working out in drawing you into the presence of God? How's that working out in bringing joy to your heart today as we celebrate Father's Day and think about God? How is that focus on failure rather than looking to the Savior? What's that producing? This isn't a pragmatic sermon, but that's a pragmatic evaluation. What is that producing? It's not producing life and life change. So maybe you're aware of, oh, it's Father's Day, and I've been an angry dad this week. Forget this week. I was yelling at the kids pulling into the parking lot today on Father's Day. Okay? So angry. I'm an angry dad. I work too many hours. I'm dominated by my work. I'm an impatient dad. I break my promises. I told the kids we'd do this. We haven't done that. I'm lazy. I'm not training my kids as I ultimately could. I'm not training them. I'm not helping them as much as I could or as much as someone else is doing. Listen, being angry and impatient and failing to train our kids, grace doesn't say no big deal. Grace doesn't say none of that matters. Grace says that's all really big deals. They're sins before God, but they're placed on Jesus Christ. And God has poured out His judgment upon His Son 
to forgive us those sins so that we can walk in a freedom before God and based out of a freedom and not a constant nagging of failure and sin, but a freedom in Christ, the Spirit of God can change our hearts so that we begin to make progress in all of those areas and so that we're becoming increasingly a less angry dad, not by beating ourselves up over being an angry dad, not by just I'm a failure and it's, it's hopeless, but by looking at Jesus who took our sins and receiving His power to change us so that we're more aware of the Savior who died for our sins than we are the sins that killed Him. That's where life change comes from. It's not saying, as far as the East is from the West, so far He removes our transgressions because they weren't that really, they weren't that significant anyway. They're significant enough to kill the Son of God. Nothing's more significant. But the grace and mercy of God is far greater and He completely removes them. So that as God relates to you today, He's not judging you as angry dad. He's saying, as an angry dad, I judged my son. I punished and crushed and brutalized and poured out wrath on my son for your anger. So run to Him and receive, acknowledge and receive that forgiveness today. So that there's a freedom in Christ Yeah, but Craig, this is a different sin because this affects my kids. These sins, this impatience, this this, uh, disinterest, this distance, this affects my kids. Then ask their forgiveness. Ask their forgiveness. Kids are resilient. Christian kids will be aware of their own sin and will be happy to forgive you as they have been forgiven. Ask their forgiveness and move on. That's the grace of God. Don't hold it over yourself. God's put it away from you. Acknowledge it and ask forgiveness and receive power to change. That's the width of his love. The height of his love, high as the heavens are from the earth. The width of his love, as far as the east is from the west, he's not charging us with our sins. And lastly is the depth of his love. Look at the third simile of the passage, 13. As a father shows compassion, to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As a father shows compassion to his children. It's interesting, the King James Version translates this pity instead of compassion, pity. I think compassion is a, a better word, it's a more common word for us in, in our day. But pity gets at something. And that is that it is an emotional word. It's a feeling word. It's a tender word. It's a caring word. And so for that reason, it's a good word. The father pities his children. He feels. He's tender. He's caring. He has a heart. This is what I love about this psalm as God speaks to us. He starts with two lofty, incomprehensible pictures, the height and the width. And then he goes and gives us a very relatable picture Well, it's like a dad who has compassion on his ignorant child, compassion on his suffering sick child, a compassion upon his sinful child. That's what God is like, tenderhearted, cares for us personally, individually. As far as the heavens are for the earth, can't even comprehend that. That could sound distant if we don't understand what he did in Christ. But the compassionate father, that's not a distant picture. Look at what he says back in verse 8. This fleshes it out a little bit. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He's speaking of the ideal father 
No one is the ideal father. No one had the ideal father. And if you didn't have the ideal father, if you had no father, an absent father, an abusive father, then you're not limited by God on receiving the truth of this scripture. God's not saying he's just like your father. He's speaking of an ideal father who really does show compassion to his children. That's what God's talking about here. So you've seen that somewhere. You've observed that. You've read of that, even if you haven't tasted that with your own father. You've seen that from someone who's shown compassion to you that's in authority, a small group leader, uh, a mature Christian, an older brother in the faith, a a pastor, a leader. Someone's demonstrated at some point, I hope, compassion for you. So you you can understand the picture. You're not not counted out on verse 13. That's not good for you because of your history. No, you, you, God has this for you too. As a father shows compassion on his children, he is slow to anger. Did you feel like God just sort of is flying off the handle at you at points and angry with you, quick to anger, s- slow to show mercy? He's so merciful and so gracious that he's completely removed your sins from you in terms of counting them against you. That's how merciful he is. That's how gracious he is like a caring, tender father. And here's what I love about this particular picture, is what is the compassion based upon? I mean, it's ultimately based upon what he does for us in Christ. But but look at what he says in verse 14. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God roots his compassion in his knowledge of our frailty. God roots his compassion in the reality that he knows we're dust. The the note in the ESV says he knows how we're formed. My my hunch is that a lot of us don't really think about this. That we may have some awareness of the holiness of God, but we're not aware of the compassion of God, which doesn't... he, He never softens his holiness in the Bible. He's always holy. He's always more holy than any of us can even imagine. He never softens his holiness... But in a phrase like this, we understand, but he does understand our weakness. He does understand our limitations. He does understand our frailties. He does understand that we're dust in comparison to him. Now, we're created in the image of God. The Bible says we're created in the image of God. So we're not equal to dust. Dust isn't created in the image of God. But compared to the glory and the holiness and the power and the knowledge of God, it's like we're, we're dust. We're, we're, that's what we're like. That's what our frame is like in particular. That's what our limitations in this life are, our knowledge limitations, our physical limitations. That's what we are like. And he gets that. Like a compassionate father, he gets that a little kid has limitations. And so he's, not, he's relating to us in light of that. Without compromising his holiness, he relates to us in compassion. And sometimes I don't think we feel that. Listen, he understands our ignorance. We don't think we're ignorant. But like a little kid wearing a superhero cape and jumping off the sofa and thinking that he's flying through the air, that's about like us and what we think our accomplishments are. We think we're knowledgeable. We think we're indestructible. We think we're powerful. We think we can handle it. We think we're controlling situations. And you've got a towel around your neck and you're bouncing off the ottoman think, yelling about Superman. That's all that is. And as a parent, you're looking down and going, yeah, okay, that's just, that, that is not really that impressive in terms of superhero powers. 
that's kind of what it's like. And I'm not saying that our independence is ever cute before God, so that illustration may not connect perfectly. But you know what I'm saying. God looks at a at, a, at us and understands the limitations that we have. He understands our ignorance. And you know what God does when you don't understand something or you don't get it? He doesn't say, I told you that once in the Bible. There's a verse on that. Why don't you get it? Like a compassionate father, he teaches again. And he teaches again. That's why the Bible says he's forbearing. That's why the Bible says he's patient. That's why the Bible says he's long-suffering. Because a compassionate father dealing with a toddler who does not understand something isn't yelling, read it for yourself, pal but getting on the ground and helping the toddler and explaining and being compassionate because there's an ignorant, there's an immaturity. Children don't change very rapidly. No one even said amen on that. That's a lot of self-control from the parents in the room. But children don't change very rapidly. Children don't change in a week. It takes 18 years, 20 years, in some cases 25 years for a child to mature into adulthood. Some are early, 16 years. But in that range, late teens, early 20s, that's when someone becomes much more adult-like and they're thinking much more independent in an appropriate way. And, and, and so you get that. I mean, if you've got a toddler at home, you understand. You don't say to your two-year-old, When are you getting a job? How long are you going to lay around here in a diaper while we feed you? (laughs) That's not a compassionate father. You're saying there's an understanding for a maturity process. Now, we don't have that with other people sometimes, and we assume God's relating with us that way. And he's saying he knows how we're formed, he knows our limitations, he knows our ignorance, and God is compassionate towards us. He's patient. When we sin and fall, he picks us up. And forgives us. He disciplines us. He brings lessons into our lives so that we see our need for Him because He loves us. But He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't lash out at us. He doesn't say, forget you. He's compassionate because He understands how, we made, how we're made. And that never, that's never an excuse for sin. So here's a balance we have to have. The Bible never excuses sin. It's more serious than we know. It costs Jesus His life. And yet God relates with mercy and forbearance and patience and compassion, knowing how we're made, knowing how mature we are, knowing our limitations. That's how God relates. So you must have both in view. The patience of God, which never should cause us to presume upon His holiness. But we must have His holiness in view, and we must have His patience in view, and most of all, we must have His grace in view that Jesus paid for our sins so that we understand God loves us more than we can describe. The cross is proof. God is, uh, God has forgiven us more than we can imagine as far as the East is from the West. And God is compassionate, compassionate towards us, not lashing out upon us, but understanding and relating to us with forbearance and patience and slow to anger. Verse eight. Is that the God you came to worship today? Because that's the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Bible. Dads, how do we respond to this? Paul says in Ephesians, imitate God. I think we look to God. I think we see Him as He is. We focus on His love. We receive His love. And then, by a changed heart and a changed mind, we minister that love. First of all, to our wives, if you're married. And secondly, to to our children. 
to our children. And when we fail, we acknowledge it. And we realize ultimately, while fathers have a great power to model something to our children, it's ultimately not your model that will save them. It's ultimately not your model that's going to be flawless. It's the Savior that we want to point them to. So ultimately, as dads, what we most want them to know is not, I'm a great dad. What we most want them to know is as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. What we most want them to know is not your dad's the holiest guy in your, that you'll ever know. What we want them to know is as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What we most want them to know is as a father has compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We want to point them to this God, and we want to acknowledge our own sin and need in humility. And we want to ask God to change us so that little by little over our lives, we more and more reflect this love to our children and to others. Your responsibility, your example is very important, obviously. But ultimately, it is God that they must see. Your example must point to him. And you can point to him in your failures and in your weaknesses, you can point to him. The, the power of the Savior is shown in redeeming the sinful and the rebellious and the weak. So your failures do not disqualify you. You may start afresh by acknowledging them, pointing to the love of God, and showing them how God has loved you regardless. And God loves them as well. His love is higher than we can imagine wider than we can fathom, and it's nearer and deeper than we can even comprehend His compassion. That's your Father today. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.